uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. I'm approaching this, this edition of How to Do Life with some trepidation because it's going to make me seem sanctimonious, too serious, and completely out of the mainstream. But I also found myself looking forward to doing this one more than almost any other because it represents a value that I hold so dear, an approach to life that I hold so dear, and that is a life of self-denial. Now, of course, that evokes images of monks traipsing around, shuffling around, and doing nothing but eating you know, bread and maybe some wine and praying all day. But it can be completely secular, and the version that I'm proposing is completely secular. But it's one that I deeply believe is at least under-considered. I am fully aware that the vast majority of, of the people who will be listening to this are going to reject it, because after all, most people define the goal of life as to maximum happiness for themselves, pleasure, perhaps meaningful work, work-life balance, laughing, fun, sensory pleasures. And I'm going to make the argument for this unbelievably ascetic, orthogonal, it's a fancy word for saying, opposite approach to life, which is to maximize the number of minutes that you spend doing what will be good for your sphere of influence or the world, ideally, independent of whether it gives you pleasure. Of course, you'll get the pleasure of knowing that you're doing something virtuous, but other than that, it's a pretty self-denying existence. What am I referring to? I'm referring to having to be, the self-denying person would be minimally, only minimally materialistic, aspire to nothing material other than the very basics for living, a, you know, a safe and quiet roof over your head, basic decent food, maybe, a, you know, basic health care and enough enough money to give yourself little pleasures to keep you going. You know, watching, binge-watching Netflix or uh, a pair of running shoes or whatever. But basically, a minimally materialistic lifestyle. Why is that, why is that so, it, and that is self-denying, but why is it beneficial? Because once you're freed from the standard valuing of the middle-class home and cars and clothing and vacations and jewelry and going out to restaurants and all that, and by the way, an occasional going out to a restaurant, a modest restaurant is hardly a violation of the self-denying life. I'm not, I'm not being quite that extreme. But denying most of that stuff what that does is it frees you to do work that is maximally contributory. Most jobs are not. I'm not all work is worthy, whether you're a ditch digger or you're or you're a CEO, uh, you know, has got value. No question. Dishwasher. Even, you know, making sure that the particles of food are taken off the plate both for health reasons and it looks more appetizing. But most work is not maximally contributory. 
Because it was maximally contributory. Like, let's say you knew you could cure cancer, you got a shot at curing cancer. You'd probably do that even if it paid you next nearly, you know, next to nothing, only enough to pay for those basics, basic, basic shelter, basic food, etc. Employers pay you to do what you wouldn't do for free. Things like being a bond trader or a fundraiser for a nonprofit that in your, your private heart of hearts, you're not sure is better than any other nonprofit or selling some fungible widget. Though. Fungible is a fancy word for interchangeable widget that isn't distinctly better than any other. So they pay you to do this, be a, be a lawyer. Even being a doctor can be extraordinarily draining. Believe me, I know. My most common clients are doctors and lawyers. And believe me, they suffer burnout, substance abuse, etc. But let's say, for example, you decide you didn't have any material aspirations, but all you thought about was how you can you spend the most hours in maximum contribution. Now, of course, you would use your best skills. I am terrible at fixing anything, so I certainly wouldn't do anything like building homes for, for people or whatever, even if that were the maximally beneficial, which I don't think it is. It doesn't have enough ripple effect. But let's say, for example, one of the things I most deeply believe is that intellectually gifted kids from working class backgrounds have, represent an enormously underserved population with tremendous, underserved in the definition, not of whether they get more or less, but where there's unrealized potential, I guess is a fairer way to say it. They have enormous unrealized potential. They are the people who, whose families are not rich enough that they'll be able to provide a little supplementation to enable them to be great bridge builders and great doctors and great leaders. They're more likely to get minimal support, not necessarily from the schools, because school funding these days is so much equalized, notwithstanding what the media says, that it's not that the school program's gonna be that different, but the parental and after-school, the co-curricular, extracurricular mentorship and guidance will never be as good for the working class kid as for the rich. So if you buy that, that they represent an enormous, unrealized group of set of potential for improving the world, right? Including potentially the cures for cancer and you know being wiser leaders than any of the embarrassing uh, presidents we've had on both sides of the aisle, then the next question about how to make a big contribution and how to be self-denying is you can, of course, use your natural best skills. If you are somebody whose best skill, you don't have to be a genius at it, but if your best relative ability, say, is in computer programming, fine. Develop software that will match mentors and protégés, especially the gifted. If you are more of an artist, go and, and create art that will demonstrate powerfully emotionally the impact of such mentorships. If you are a salesman or fundraiser type, be a lobbyist for these kind of, for, for, for working class, what's commonly called blue collar gifted kids. If you are a writer, write a grant proposal to serve that population. You're getting the idea. And so my point is though, those activities are normally too risky to pursue if you're wanting to, to, to have the typical materialistic lifestyle. 
They may require you to work for nothing or to take a long time to find a job doing that or do that work self-employed or never be remunerative. So by being self-denying, you can make a much bigger difference in general. Even more painful is the, the self-denying person not only does work that is perhaps less remunerative, but in his or her after-work life, in recreation, spends minimum time in recreation. Because, say, after that 40-hour work week is done, in hours 41 to 70, you have a choice. If I spend it watching Netflix or playing basketball or having sex or giggling with my friends, each one of those hours is an hour I'm not making a maximal contribution. And the definition, this is, I probably should have mentioned this up front, but to me, the definition of the life well-led is completely in how contributory you are, not in work-life balance. As I said, an hour is 41 to 70. If you clone two people and one of them after you know, may be very contributing in, in contributory in hours 0 to 40, but from hours 41 to 70, chooses to have a normal fun life or have, you know, a pleasurable life. And you have a clone of that person who instead in hours 41 to 70 is spending more hours in the service of making the world better, as I've outlined. From my definition of what the life well-led is, that second person has a clearly much better life, much more contributory life, and may even feel more rewarded in addition to being more, having a more rewarding life in terms of the impact on the world. So the self-denying person has to pay a big price. They're spending nearly every waking moment in the service of making the world better. Hours 40, zero to 70 as many as possible. Now, the typical objection is that, oh, if you work that hard, you're going to get sick or you'll burn out. I have not found that to be true, not just for myself, but for many people who are most devoted to a life of sacrifice, self-denial. As long as you're doing work that you are naturally good at, and I gave examples, of the kind of ways in which you could use your natural best strengths or your acquired best strengths in the service of making the biggest difference possible. Doing that for hours 41 through 70 is less likely to make you burn out because you're doing something you're naturally good at. You're doing it for something important. And implicit, and I hadn't thought about this before, but you're retaining a measure of control. What causes stress, burnout, and health problems is often a lack of control. Having somebody whip you into shape, making you work harder, in not being able to predict what, what your boss is going to want or, or new surprises. But if you're in more control and these kind of things that I've talked about, many of them are self-employment, so you've got most of the control. So you're much more likely to be motivated, stay motivated, not get burned out. And of course, you could change your focus. You get sick and tired, say, of you know, uh, doing training for, uh, for um, mentors and protégés. So you could switch to something else that feels also maximally contributory. But you're much less likely to have the health problems of stress and burnout. When I think, by the way, of the typical person 
who in hours 41 through 70 are doing recreation. So many of those are more stressful. Family time. I was just I just went out to get a coffee and I in front of the coffee place there was a guy and his wife and three kids and the kids were just inordinately demanding. One was screaming, one where's my donut? Blah, blah, blah. Having that 24/7 for 18 years in hours 41 through 80 in the this vaunted family time, I would bet anything is more stressful. I would, if we attached a meter to them, I would bet you their blood pressure, their heart rate, their cortisol release was far greater than if they were spending hours 41 through 70 doing work that used their best skill, where they had more control and they weren't having to worry about so many other, about children or other things. When I think about other people, the way they use hours 41 through 70, on the golf course, we've all heard of golfers or tennis players who throw throw the golf club or the tennis racket or who get pissed off at themselves or pissed off at others from playing I've played basketball my whole life. And while I'm I'm not the kind who loses his temper, there certainly were guys that were and were would cheat deliberately and you can be sure that they were more stressed in their quote recreation than a person would be had they spent hours forty one through seventy using their best skills in something that was going to make the biggest difference in the world. When I come back after the break, I want to talk about ripple, uh, not the not the cheap wine. I want to talk about ripple effect and you know the definition of making the biggest difference possible. Anyway, uh, I'll be just about ten or fifteen seconds. Uh, I'm Marty Nemco, and this is How to Do Life. And please stay with me. You're listening to How to Do Life with career and personal coach, Dr. Marty Nemco. If you'd like to work with him, email him a description of your situation, mnemco at comcast.net. That's M-N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net. Marty is pleased if you choose to subscribe to this podcast. If you're not listening to this on Simplecast, just go to how-to-life.simplecast and click on listen and subscribe. Thank you for staying with me. Um, I promised I was going to talk about ripple effect. Implicit and maybe even somewhat explicit in what I've been saying before was the the primacy of spending every minute possible, certainly every hour possible, trying to make the biggest difference possible. But how do you know that begs the question of how does one determine what is the biggest difference possible? The conventional answer is helping the people with the greatest deficit. That's why so many people donate to the poor. That's why Biden's administration is talking about more and more for the poor, for African-Americans, for Palestinians rather than Israelis, for, for quote, developing nations, for the disabled, or as the New Testament would say, the least among us. But I would like to proffer a very different definition because while our heartstrings may maybe tugged, for example, when we watch the commercial of the, the poor, forlorn-looking dog sitting in a cage in a, in, a, in a pound. If we really care, and not just want a virtue signal, if we really care about making a difference, we're going to ask what every battlefield medic knows to triage. He or she has limited supplies. It is unethical of that that medic to use those supplies on those who are the sickest, even though they're screaming the loudest. It is most ethical, most loving, most caring 
most contributory to use those resources on those with the greatest potential to profit from those resources. And that, of course, applies not just to battlefield ethics, battlefield ethics, but to you. As you're deciding how to make the biggest difference, rather than immediately succumb to the visceral tendency to want to help the least among us, you must ask yourself who not only can benefit the most from the efforts, but who has the potential to have ripple effect. So the example that I gave earlier about gifted, intellectually gifted kids in working class neighborhoods, that's a perfect example of big ripple effect. Because if you take a kid who, if left alone to just have the normal education, will do okay, but with great mentorship, could be a better bridge builder, better nonprofit leader, for-profit leader, inventor, political leader. The ripple effect is huge. Of course, that's merely one example. Other examples of those with ripple effect, of course, is indeed the cancer researcher. If you have the ability to be thinking so rigorously and to think experimentally and to be clever and to go beyond the obvious and be dogged, to be a cancer researcher, if you could even contribute to the curing of, unfortunately, cancer is not a monolithic disease. It's hundreds of different types of cancer with different causations. But if you could even contribute to the cure for even a subset of cancers, what a ripple effect. Not just saving the lives or extending the lives of people with cancer, but think of the impact that the family suffers. Think of how the healthcare system suffers from the ongoing costs of taking care of cancer patients. So that's what I mean about ripple. You know, so many people, you know, well, for example, and I love, I love dogs. I love my little sweet Hachi. I enjoy classical music and listening to the symphony. But if I really am trying to make a big difference, I will put aside that visceral emotional pull. I'll never donate to an animal cause, except maybe some used blankets that they want to use for, you know, they, they can use for the, uh, in, in the dog beds. But my serious contributions of money and time are never going to go to the symphony. And even though I love theater, they're never going to go to theater. Yeah, I know in theory, theory, you know, theater can change hearts and minds and help people grow and inspire them, but I believe that's too distal. I would much sooner donate my time and money toward the creation of mentor-protege mentorships, especially among the intellectually gifted, especially among those who aren't rich. They don't have to be dirt poor because very often the dirt poor have such a constellation of other problems that my money or time there may not make a difference. So my calculus says that I make the biggest difference if I'm focusing on working class people and especially kids because they have a whole life ahead of them and those who are intellectually gifted. We're all different. We are not all gifted. That's BS. Some of us are born with and or because of very early environment we have greater reasoning ability, problem-solving ability, greater impulse control. We have different people have different potentials 
to be great, to have ripple effect. And it is critical that as you evaluate where you're going to put your time, you consider the potential of the recipients as well as your own potential. For example, I cannot fix anything. I am just not gifted in the engineering, home fix-it realm of things. And, you know, my father was pretty good at it. But I was never picked it up. I had never never had that instinct. So it would be a, not a good use of my time to be somebody who's going to devote time to f- fixing up houses, even for people who would then have enormous potential for ripple effect. But I... The, my best skills are two, thinking on my feet, thinking rigorously, and playing the piano. Now, playing the piano does not have much ripple effect, so I do it in only little bits of spurts. I make YouTube videos of me playing the piano. I just did one in which I gave a piano lesson on how to play the piano with feeling by playing Mary Had a Little Lamb and in sterile ways and then ever more feeling ways. But my point is, you must, if you're really interested in a life of contribution, you must focus on ripple effects. So let's turn into summary mode now. So, nothing could seem more anathema to most people than a life of self-denial. In Western cultures especially, we believe in self, self, in buying our way to happiness or having sex on our way to happiness, sports, entertainment, music, fashion, our way to happiness. And yet we all know people who are hyper-wealthy who sit in their mini manses or their full-size manses or their yachts with their third martini or their THC saying, is that all there is? From where I sit, I want to present this contrarian opinion that most of society is dead wrong. That the life well-led, in fact, is the life of great self-sacrifice at work being so non-materialistic that you can choose activities with complete regard to how much difference it's going to make in the world, how much ripple effect. And in recreation time, which I'm terming hours 41 through 70 of of a work week, choosing as much as you can to work on those activities are going to have maximum ripple effect and foregoing pleasure. Now, of course, it's not binary. It's not like a light switch. It's not all on or off. We all make different choices. And work-life balance can be defined as working 40 hours in the way I've described, being self-denying, but in the other 40, hanging out. It doesn't have to be materialistic hanging out. It could be sitting and, you know, taking a walk with the dog. It could be watching TV or being with family or whatever. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. But I think you could do worse than to aspire to a life in which you try to maximize, given who you are and your external pressures that you have to adhere to. Somehow we always feel we must capitulate to the family's desire for more time and attention, for example. But consistent with who you are and the exigencies that you can't avoid, or you feel you can't avoid, to try to aim for the life that is typically denigrated, the secular version of the very kindly, generous, society-serving monk, the self-denying life. In any event, uh, I thank you for watching. I apologize if this seems sanctimonious, but it's one of the more honest and I think important talks I can give. 
I welcome, of course, your, uh, your positive comments and thumbs up and accept your, your thumbs down and criticisms. Um, I do, uh, I'm especially flattered if you do to cho choose to share this on your social media so that my efforts can have broader impact. I do thank you for, uh, for either watching this on YouTube or listening to this episode of How to Do Life. Uh, by the way, you can email me at mnemco at comcast.net. That's M-N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net. And whether you agree or disagree with me is fine, but, but let's, let's both be respectful, huh? Anyway, thanks again for watching and listening. I'm Marty Nemco. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemco, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. Post-production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.